This episode of the Joan and Carrie Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel. Fantasy football for everyday fans. you got a new contest starting every week. No busted season. Something for everyone with lots of contests to choose from starting at just a buck. Just pick a contest, choose your team, watch your score real time. More than 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Very, very easy to do. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and enter the promo code Jonah. That's FanDuel.com. Sign up with the promo code Jonah. And thank you to FanDuel for sponsoring the podcast. And this episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast is with the great Shea Serrano. Shea Serrano is a freaking superstar. Self-made guy. Got into writing as basically a way to pay the bills. Liked writing, thought it'd be cool, but ultimately just needed to find a way to support his family. And has turned that, and talent, and hard work, and all that good stuff, into great, great things. Shay is the author of one New York Times bestselling book uh, called The Rap Book, And he is on his way to another bestselling book that is basketball and other things he should hear in the next couple days. Uh, about the results of that, but uh, sales have been through the roof. Really, really good, and uh, Shea deserves all of it, all the credit in the world, and uh, I love this book. It's super fun. Uh, I talked to him during the podcast. A little bit of Free Darko in there. Uh, lots of, like, fun little essays in there. People remember the Free Darko days, and the illustrations are just great. Arturo Torres did a tremendous job. We talked about that. We talked about getting into the writing world and uh, a zillion other things. Shea, also a writer, by the way, at The Ringer. Highly recommend that you read him and Ben Lindbergh and Michael Bauman and Ari Rubin and a million zillion other people over there. Lots of my old pals at Grandland, and I wish them all the success of the universe, and I am happy for Shea uh, that he is doing all these great things. Actually, the first time that we ever got to meet, despite the fact that we'd worked together at Grandland. Uh, so this was really cool, and uh, he was nice enough to invite me into his home, and it was all very, very lovely. So, Shay, way to go, man. And uh, thanks to him for coming on the pod. And thanks to you for listening to the pod. I hope you enjoy it. That's literally what we're doing on. That's, literally That's cool. Chase I didn't even know you could do that. It's that easy. I'm like, first of all, delighted to meet you. I've never met you, and I feel like that's kind of it was the ethos of Grandland. Maybe it is with the Ringer too that there was an office somewhere, but we were all like satellites and just kind of all right, 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 right. So this is exciting. Um, I want to ask you first of all some of the questions like you've been asked obviously a bunch of times before, but I want to ask you about. The path to writing, just because, if for no other reason, I'm so interested in it, because I was like the most traditional, well, not the most traditional, but I did go to journalism school and all that garbage, but I came to sports writing much later, and in your case, it was life circumstances. So, if you don't have, like, classical training, and you don't have, which I don't think I had either, really, but whatever, (laughs) let's be honest, but if you don't, if you're just kind of starting from zero, Uh Is it scary? Are you like, oh, I'm totally going to fuck this up? Like, did you think, oh, like I could totally make a go of this? Or was it just, I got to pay the bills. I can do what I got to do. Yeah, it was more of that last one. Yeah. We needed some money. 
and that seemed like a way to get some money. Yeah. So I'll I'll try that. It wasn't a, I wasn't like very nervous or or whatever because it wasn't a like a dream I was trying to chase down. Interesting. Or or anything like that. It was just I gotta I wanna pay these bills, so I'll, I'll try it this way. And yeah, it, I mean it's scary. It's definitely like, but more overwhelming than than like terrifying. Yeah. If it feel it feels like for me it was like I was standing at the foot of the ocean trying to figure out how to get across is what it seemed like um but you know you just start picking up pieces and make a little tiny boat and, and then you're off did you have any kind of support system did you have like family members who were writers did you have a friend of a friend who was an editor somewhere did you have anybody you could bounce stuff off or are you just like totally going to the ocean by yourself no i didn't know anybody who had done that nobody in san antonio on like our side of town was yeah it's not a, we didn't even know there was a job that you could do i didn't even know it was a job you could do until I got offered one. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I didn't know anybody. It was just a situation where I, I started looking on the internet or the newspapers and I saw names and like, okay, these people must be writers. So <laughs> let me start emailing everybody and try to figure figure this out. Yeah. Uh, that's the cool thing about the, the internet really is like when you show up, nobody knows who you are or, or what you are. So if you just walk in like, I'm a writer, then people go, oh, that, he's a writer and you're off. And we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I feel like that's one of the things, I mean, I try to do it myself, is just, like, reach out to other people who are trying to make it in this totally ridiculous business, which keeps getting harder and harder, is that because you felt alone at the beginning, it's like, oh, if I can help this person, I totally will, or is it building camaraderie, or what is it that you're like, oh, this person's a writer, I need to try to help them. If I can. Come on, when I do it now? Now, yeah. Yeah, that, that's more of me just paying it forward. That's cool. For some people who did it in the beginning. Like, the very first person who ever did that for me was a guy named Matt Sanzala, who, he lives in Austin now with his family. Mm-hmm. He used to run, like, this hip-hop stuff for South by Southwest and all this. But he was, like, he was, like, the Texas rap writer that everybody sort of, they kept saying his name. So I found his website... I got in contact with him. I was asking if I could interview him because I had talked my way into like a press pass for this little festival that was happening in, in Houston called Screw Fest. Yeah. It was like a celebration of DJ Screw. So I told him, I, like I told them I was with a newspaper. They didn't even ask what newspaper. They were just very excited to have press come. Yeah. I got a, a pass and then I found his website and I emailed him and asked if I could interview him. And there, maybe like the first five minutes were me interviewing him about DJ Screw and then it just turned into me talking to him about being a writer. And we talked for like an hour, and we had never met or anything, but he just took that time to do that for me, and then he like connected me to an editor at the Houston Press, and and I started going that way. But there were other people too, like Jay Busby, who... Of course, Jay's great. I never met him before, but I could see his name on website, so I emailed him, and he took some time to answer questions. Will Leach... From Will's, I think I've, I think Will might be the person I've had on the various iterations of my podcast the most. Yeah, like he, six times. He's great. He was super cool. You know, if you this was two thousand and eight or something like that, two thousand and seven. Yeah. So if you were on all of those sports blogs or reading them, you saw his. Deadspin, he's OG. And then he was Deadspin. Everybody seemed to gravitate there, so I was like, well, let me talk to this guy. Yeah. And he gave me some really like some super strong advice at the time that I give people now today because I was trying to figure out. Oh, I want to write a magazine covers for GQ or whatever. But I've never done <laughs> before. And he said, you're never going to ever be able to do that. Like, pitch local stories to local papers. Yeah. And that's how you get in the game. And he was 100% right. That, that was the first time I started getting told yes. Like, I pitched covering a high school football game or high school basketball game to a neighborhood newspaper. And then they were like, yeah, we'll hire you. And then you just 
I was flipping it uh, into bigger things. But that's why I do it now because people like that, for no reason at all, and, and, and like not expecting anything ever in return, took some time to answer some questions for me. So how can I not do that? You know what I'm saying? I think it's fun. I swear that there are more kind people in our industry than I think people realize. Like the more that I meet people or whatever, it just seems like there are a lot of people like that and all of us struggle. It's not, it's impossible that you didn't. Yeah. I don't see how you could have not. It it's doesn't a, matter if you, what your background is. Writing is a lonely job and it's a job filled with a million no's all the time. Yeah. And people are sensitive to that. Like, so if somebody asks me for some help, I should help them because I know exactly the feeling that they're having right now when they go a month without anybody returning an email like that's a sucky thing so you, you know I think that connects everybody in it did you have a moment forget about like a lot of page hits or this one broke or whatever but just like on a personal level where you're like oh yeah like I think I'm starting to get this a little bit like you turned a phrase the right way or you just like really nailed the story or whatever was it really early do you feel like it took a long time it took several months I, I I had started and I was writing for like a little tiny neighborhood newsletter that this woman was printing up in her garage with her husband. Amazing. And handing it out. That was the fir very first place I ever wrote. Did she pay you? 15 bucks. Amazing. The near North... You know what? I think the first gig that I had was might have bought 15 Canadians, so you beat me though. <laughs> but yeah. It was the near Northwest banner. There's a pizza place like 10 minutes away from here and they have a kiosk in there with a bunch of little newspapers. So I just, I saw that. I grabbed all of them. Emailed every like I, was, I, I did that thing, and she let me write a thing for her, and uh, I flipped that into the next thing, and eventually I landed at the Houston Press. Yep. And uh, I was pitching concert coverage and stuff like that, and I pitched a, a cover story, and I'd never written like a big thing before, but they greenlit the cover story, and I started researching that. It was like an eight-week process or six-week process, and. Whenever you do a cover story for the press or for really any place, that's when you have interactions with, with like the editor-in-chief. So it's just, it's, she's still there, this woman named Margaret Downing, and she was very, very patient with me and like explaining this is how a cover story should be written, this is how you... like Because it was, a, it was an investigative piece. It was about... Gee, that's a lot yeah, early on. Yeah. It, it was about um, people who record movies in the movie theater because again this was 2008 we weren't really doing it on the internet yet Yeah. but they would record them in the movie theater and then like sell them at the flea markets and the beauty shops around town so I, I uh, got in contact with a guy who was doing that and so I pitched her the story um, but yeah so she was telling me like here's how you get information from, from the city or here's how you do an interview with the with the Motion Picture Association of America like she was showing me all of this stuff and showing me how to write it and like explaining what's good what's bad and working on that story is when I felt like, I think I can do this. Um, I, I, you know, I'll give it a try. And then it was also helpful. Up until then, all the stuff I'd written was like $20 blog post or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that big cover story, they paid me $2,000 for it, which blew my mind. <laughs> I know. I was, I was still teaching. I was teaching at the time. My teacher paychecks every two weeks were like $1,200 or $1,100. And I got that one, and I, I didn't even ask ahead of time what they were paying me. Yeah. I just did it. Yeah. And uh, that showed up, and I was like, this is incredible. I'll, I'll do this more often. You know? I mean, that's rare for anybody now. Like, it's just, it's, it's hard to pull off. It's got to be a great feeling of accomplishment. Um, you talked about Busby and Leach and all these people. What about influences on the reading side? I mean, I, I obviously, Simmons has got to be one. Like, it's, it seems uh -huh. like it's in your DNA, and obviously, you guys have linked up and work-wise and all that stuff. 
Uh, who else like did you really gravitate toward as you were getting into it? Simmons was one of the first ones. I was working at the before teaching. I was at, like at a construction company. Yeah. And they would have these trailers that the home builders would work out of. Yeah. And you go in there, and they it was a computer. There weren't computers around all the time back then. This was, you know, two thousand and four or something. Yeah. Like that. But every once in a while, I would go in there, and one of the builders he would have a screen up, and I knew if I saw. It was like an orange or yellowish background. Page two. If I Hunter saw, S. Thompson, Ralph Wiley. Yeah. If I saw money. if I saw that, I knew it was Bill. Yeah. Bill stuff, and I would like try to sneak on his computer when he would leave and, and and read it. So yeah, he was definitely one of the first ones. And then once I got, I didn't pay too much attention to. I didn't read a lot mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, it wasn't until I decided I was going to try to write that I started. But like uh, Chuck Klosterman was a was a a big one. And then the, the further into it I got, the, the more people I found. And it was like, today, even still, uh, Gia Tolentino. She's uh, great. From the New Yorker, yeah. She's actually from Houston. Oh, cool. Which I didn't know yeah. until recently. Um, Doreen St. Felix is also at the New Yorker. She was at MTV. Uh, Chris X was like one of the first rap writers who just was, I thought was incredible. Yeah. He, he writes even still today, but he writes in a way that I can... Never ever write. Just what did it take to write a great rap story? Is it different than writing a great something else? It's story? all the same. Yeah, you gotta you gotta figure out how do you connect this guy's story to everybody. Yeah, and and he's was the best at it in my opinion. But like him, John Caramonica, Sean, and Chris, and all those guys. Yeah, I've never. And then you ended up working with. And all I ended up working many. working with all of them. Yeah, yeah. is wild. Uh, I want to ask you also about chronology because like. You know, skill goes a long way, obviously, and practice goes a long way and stuff, but circumstances matter. Luck matters for all of it. It doesn't matter what your background is and all that stuff. And I sometimes wonder how I do in 1957 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, if it's an era in which you can't, like, your writing style is informal, um, there's first person in it, and it's like, Super duper entertaining, but it's not like J School 101 at all. It's right. not like before the blog era, before any of that stuff. I don't know. I guess there were people like that. I don't know, but like it, it just seems different. Is it possible to imagine how you'd fare in the landscape in 1985 or whatever? Like, what would that look like? Could you even make a go of something like this? I doubt it. Yeah, I, I needed the internet to connect myself to all the people. I think that's why back then it was so important that you went to journalism school yeah. and you made all of those connections. It's way easier to make a friend on the internet than it was to like make a friend through the postal service. Of course, yeah. So I, I needed the internet, if for nothing else, then to wiggle my way into the circle. Makes sense. Uh, I also want to ask you about questions as a framing method because it's like it, it pervades your... At Grandland it was like that, at The Ringer it was like that, it's the toll I mean, this is literally a book of questions. Uh-huh. Is that just the most, is that the easiest jumping off point for you? How did you come to that as this device that you use like a lot and it works extremely well? It's just like, yeah, that's exactly how I would have, I'm reading, I'm just like, oh, of course it should be a question. Right. I, I think it's, for me, the most entertaining yeah. for myself mm-hmm. when, I, when I'm writing that way. But also it's helpful because if I just sit down and start writing without that question in my head of what I'm trying to answer, then I'll just write 12,000 words and not get anywhere. So with the book, I, I knew if I just start with a question, I have to answer this. And then it becomes just easier to work within those fences because then it's like 
you know what the question is, and now when I'm writing it and when I'm editing it, I know if this sentence I'm writing doesn't help me answer this question, then it should not be in here and I can take it out. And it just makes everything clearer for me because all my stuff is scattershot. And I freaking, and I freaking love Arturo Torres. Like, I, I, I just, yeah. it's, it's, he's really good. And what the book, when I picked it up, the first thing that I thought of was the Free Darko guys, immediately. Mm-hmm. The illustrations, the, the style of writing, it just had, I mean, a little different, but just like there were some common things or anything. Had you read their stuff before? Had yeah. you, it, it, the idea of the illustration, like, well, in the first one, you did yourself, the Bun B one, like, was it just, oh, this is always going to be my path if I'm going to go for big projects as people like images in that way too? Because, I mean, it just, the writing is incredible, but it's so enhanced by, like, a picture of Bob Cousy from the neck down or whatever. Yeah, it, for me, it helps pull everything together because, Everybody doesn't have the same brain that you have. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when I'm writing a thing, I can see it in my head. It makes sense. But it, it, it's very helpful if I can show somebody what I'm picturing. So if I make a, a statement, like if I, there's a picture in there I really like of Scotty Pippen walking away from an explosion. <laughs> and the reason we have that picture is because I was writing about his dunk over Patrick Ewing. And, for me, the more important than anything else is I'm trying to capture some sort of theme or tone in the writing. And that's why I like the art, because the art will... If I can't do it in the writing, then you know that's what I was going for by looking at that picture, and then maybe it'll help pull it all together. So yeah, I, I try to incorporate as much art in that stuff as as possible. How does that look creatively when you, like you used to try your own, and then you went to something like, how did you meet up with Arturo? How did you guys figure out, okay, this, this thing could work? Because like, there are a lot of good artists in the world, but you could go to them and you could be like, I want this, and they, maybe they don't get you. Like, How is it that you guys really seem to have connected intellectually? I met him, again, through the internet. Yeah. He had done a flyer for this rap group, uh, this local rap group mm-hmm. that I like. And when I saw the flyer, I was like, this is exactly the sort of art I'm looking for. Because I was already working on the rap yearbook. And I knew I needed an artist because I didn't want to do it all myself. Yeah. Uh, so I found the flyer. I saw him. His work. I got in contact with the group, and then they connected me to to their manager, and then she connected me, or she just gave me his name, and then I, you know, hunted him down from there. And then he, it turned out he was just this Mexican dude from Dallas. Amazing. And uh, yeah, it was great. So I contacted him. We talked on the phone once or twice. I explained what I was trying to do. He was into it at the time. I think he was working like part time at Urban Outfitters or something like that. And he was excited about trying to do a book. So we just started off. And in the beginning, it was like I was trying very hard to keep him corralled. And like, I, this, I need exactly this picture of this. And, and it was just too much back and forth. And it wasn't working. And I figured out the best way for him to work was to just fucking get out of his way. Yeah. So it became a situation where rather than me saying, I need a picture of Scottie Pippen walking away from an explosion, I would just say, I need a picture of Scottie Pippen doing something cool. Oh, and he would just come up with it. And then, then they just let him work. Yeah. And two or three days later, he would send me a picture, and I'd be like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need. And every once in a while, he'll he'll miss the mark, or I will not, because I wouldn't have explained exactly the theme I was going for. But, you know, nine times out of ten, he shows up with something I had not even pictured, but that fits it perfect. Um, so that's how, that's how we work. And it's almost exclusively through text. Or, or email every once in a while. But yeah, I just tell them a feeling I need and or what I'm writing about and then just let him do what he does. This is somewhat related, but I'm, I have to shout out Aaron Dana, who I don't know if you know his work. He's but great. He's great. Yeah, he's done Grandland and a bunch of other stuff. And he reminds there's some similarities there too. And I just, you said different people think differently. 
I have nothing. I have no artistic talent, nothing. I can't even imagine trying to draw. And the people who can tell stories just by, like, you know, even the slope of somebody's jaw, it's uh-huh. just, it's, it's like, it blows me. He, he did a thing for me when I was at Grand, one of my <coughs> favorite articles, it was about Jean-Claude Van Damme, and he did the art for that one. I was really excited. I didn't, I didn't even ask permission from Grantland. I just contacted him and was like, hey, can you do this art? Yeah. And then I'll try to figure out how to pay you. And, uh, and He's then, blowing up. Yeah, he was, he, it was wonderful. I was really excited. I have some of his artwork hanging in the, the room. That's right awesome. Here. Yeah, like a, a, there's a, a white men can't jump picture that he drew. Yeah, 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 I remember that. And a bunch of like little tiny cards that are just portraits. And then some like, I think they're like seven by sevens of a bunch of portraits. I got I bought a bunch of his stuff. He's, he gave me a <coughs> Daryl Strawberry t-shirt. It's bright orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I said, everywhere yeah, that, that one. one. <laughs> the best. Um, okay, I want to get into the book. And uh, he starts to talk about like Pip and Dunk. And the book is just like, it's dunks. There's a lot of freaking dunks. Right? A lot of dunks in there. And like, I mean, we all like dunks or whatever, but it seems like it's part of your DNA. And I love the section about cricket. And I, that's like one of my favorite parts okay. of the book. And... The idea, it's funny because I'm much taller than you, but I couldn't dunk other than a volleyball either. I'm six foot four. I just have no, I'm like, I'm six foot three. So. You are six foot three, <laughs> for sure. But, uh, and, and so I, I would like almost withdraw myself from thinking about dunks because like, why am I so tall and I can't properly, I, I don't know, it's too, my hands are too small, I don't know. But, um, also I have no jumping ability. But um, there was something mythological about cricket, and there's something about the way that you talk about dunks. It's more than like, oh, dunk. Is it just like your earliest memories of basketball are just dunks in your mind? Or is it a personal thing that you're like, I wish that you could dunk? Or is it just dunks are cool and that's that? I think it's it starts with me never having been able to dunk. Yeah. And it just... It's like a mythology almost. Mm-hmm. And then you see people do it, or you see them do it in real life, and it's this very incredible thing to me and then once you get past just that part of it then there's always like stuff wrapped up in dunks that you can it's like a release of aggression for a, a lot of times especially on that pip and dunk yeah the, the part in the book you're talking about is like all about the most disrespectful dunks which is just a fun thing to to get into and uh and study but yeah you've got a part of it i, I always want to do it i never could it's like a you can play basketball forever and just never touch that part of the game. So it's just a special thing. Yeah. And then just disrespectful stuff is always fun and funny. And it, it all fits together perfectly for me. I love the way you talk about some of the guys who got disrespected. Like the Chris Dudley stuff. Chris Dudley, who's like a super smart guy and like accomplished in many ways and stuff like that. And it was just, that's how we're going to remember Chris Dudley. Yeah. And, now, and that's like a crossover to what I was going to ask you. I didn't mean to cross over, but I guess we're going there. Uh, I love the stuff about players that are known for other stuff or known for negative stuff. It feels like there's a real redemption element to it. Like, there's, there's a whole freaking chapter about poor Nick Anderson, like, <laughs> which I've never read anything like that before. But then you think about it, you're like, well, yeah. Is that a personal thing for you? Or like, well, you know, I've had redemption too. Or are you, are you just like an empathetic person? Because with that, like, in terms of like poignancy, that might have been it for me. All that stuff. I was like, oh, I love this. Yeah. It, I think... I do, I'm sort of drawn to those players who end up in those situations, mostly because I could never, I I don't know what it feels like to be LeBron James. Like, I've never been the LeBron James of anything at all. Yeah. Um, I'm more of, like, 
Booby Gibson. Like, that, guy, <laughs> that guy who might have one or two great moments in the rest of his career is like a punchline, it feels like. So yeah, it's it's fun to to watch those guys or study those guys and so try to get a more rounded picture of, of who they are or the stuff they've gone through. Like the like John Starks was one of my favorite players just because of all the stuff he had to get through just to be a Nick, and then now we're going to like remember him for the Game 7 when he just fell apart. He's like in he's a Beastie a, Boys lyric. That's a big deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's done all of these incredible things, and he's this very just like remarkably tough person, and we don't pay attention to that enough, I feel like, so I wanted to do do that with a, a bunch of other players who... Anytime somebody talks about them, it's for a bad reason, but there's like other cool stuff that they did. The toughness stuff comes up too uh, in the Purge chapter, and uh, you know, you, you write for Paul Pierce basically. And Paul Pierce has this rep, well, he's gone now, but he developed this reputation like there was the wheelchair in LA or whatever that Paul Pierce was soft. It's like, yeah, that dude got stabbed 11 times. That doesn't really happen to very many people. And I don't know why we kind of lost, like, obviously, he's a great career. He's going to be a Hall of Famer, but like, for some reason, he got this reputation. Maybe it's just because people in LA didn't like him because he went from LA to Boston. But like, like, dude, like he got stabbed eleven times. What are you gonna do with that? I yeah. don't know. You can't do anything more than what he did and stay alive and and not be tough. Um, so there's the dunking, and then there's the who you want to dunk on. And uh, I want to know, like, the end of it. You kind of. Go into it, you go into it, go into it. I don't even know if I want to spoil it, but let's say that there's a historical figure. You could tell it or not, because it'll be up to you, but there's a historical figure you're like, I want to dunk on this guy. How do you go through the process of thinking about who it is that you want to do? I feel like this is like a, you know, like who would you want to beat up or whatever? Would you want to beat up Gandhi? Would you want to right. beat All that stuff. Uh, and again, this depends on whether or not you want to get into this guy, but like, why was it that guy? When so the chapter you're talking about, yeah. who, who, if you could dunk on anyone, who yeah. would it be? Originally, it started out as uh, like you have to pick an NBA player, yeah, and then that just seemed way less fun when I started writing it. But that was one of the few ones where I just wrote it one time straight through, and you can sort of tell when you're reading it as you get to the end. And I like realized the guy that I should have picked, or I'm going to. So that was that was legit. It wasn't like a writing device. You literally wrote. You're like, oh, what the, this yeah, guy, yeah. obviously. I was like, that's interesting. Just sitting there writing, 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 and coming up with names, and like it would be cool to dunk on this person, but maybe yeah. not for that reason, or this person, but not for that reason. And then yeah, I just ended up with with the last guy, and it, yeah, that one wasn't like a prepared thing or whatever. I just I'm gonna I, I knew going in I was gonna do this just like a one take and see what happens, and it worked out. Have you ever been dunked on in a game? Yeah, yeah, I have. We were, I was in college the first time it happened. Because I went to San Antonio, I, was, I went to high school in San Antonio. Yeah. Which is, uh, the part where I was in was almost exclusively Hispanic. Yeah. And we, we don't dunk. It's just <laughs> not a thing that we do. We like, on my high school team, there were two guys who could dunk, and that was it. Yeah. And now, when I coach, like, middle school, we had eighth graders who were dunking. Gee. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, in high school, I never, it was never a threat that I had to watch out for. But I, I remember I was in college, it was like my first or second year. And the the way the gym was set up, it was four courts, like, next to each other. Yeah. And the very first court was, like, the worst players. And then as you moved up, it was, like, the next level, next level. And then the last court was the college players. Yeah. And you sort of had to work your way up to that yeah. court. And I had, like, a hot streak for three months. And I, I got up to the, to the court with the college players. And I was, like, super pumped about it. They finally let me play in the game. And, and I was balling out one game. And I hit, like, 
two or three threes in a row. Nice. And then I got, I pump faked the guy and drove in and hit a layup over the, like a big dude, like maybe six, eight, something like that. Hit over his fingers. Yeah. Off the top of the backboard and dropped in. And when it went in, I was like talking back, oh, back, no. back down the court. Right? I was really feeling myself. And I guess he was pissed off. And I was jogging. I wasn't paying attention. And I turned around. And when I turned around, he had the ball and was already at the three-point line. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and he took two steps and then just rose up. And I just, I was like, uh, on that dunk where LeBron jumps on, dunks on Jason Terry. And he's there, but he's not doing anything. Yeah. That was me. I like jumped and sort of turned away from it. And. He dunked it on me, and then he screamed at me, and I was like, well, that's the end of my basketball <laughs> career against the college guys. Let me move back one court to where they're not dunking on everybody. But yeah, that was the first time I got dunked on, and then happened a couple of t- you know, maybe two or three more times after that, but I never forgot that one. Is it better to get out of the way? Is it better to contest? Like, I mean, is it, you know, better to love and loss and all that stuff? Because, like, you know, it, the best... If from the aggressor's perspective, the best dunks are when somebody's contesting and you just cram in the guy's face. So if you're the other guy, you just want to not want to be embarrassed or you're just going to slide out of the way. You're like, no, fuck this. I'm going to go for it. No, you got to go for it. Yeah. I feel like then those are the players I like the most, the ones who, like, Brandon. Yeah, Brandon Knight. Brandon Knight. Yeah. I mean, there's no way you're stopping DeAndre Jordan, but he, he's going to try. Yeah. There's no way you're going to stop these guys. Uh, I think you got to you got to just get dunked on. If you never get dunked on, then you just weren't trying hard enough. I, uh... When I was in high school, I was about six four, well, same height, six four, one forty five, one fifty, tiny guy. <laughs> and then uh, in in uh, Quebec, you have like man, it's, it's like junior college, basically between high school and uh, and university. And so I was the starting center in junior college. By then, I was like six four, one sixty five. Uh-huh. And uh, the other schools uh, had guys. Uh, one guy in particular was six ten, maybe two eighty. Okay. And he would post me up, and, uh, <laughs> and it was a disaster. So I couldn't help but get dunked because I was in the interior. I was like the designated yeah. shot blocker and stuff like that. And I remember trying to front him, and that didn't work. And I remember trying to go back of him, and that didn't work. And I'm just like, like you're getting dunked on transition. And I don't know if that's better or worse than just getting bullied, like like Shaq versus Dudley. Like I was Dudley every time. Oh, that's the way it works. Yours is the way it works. Yeah, I was getting thrown to the floor and like no concussions, but like you know chest bruises. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's it's not. <laughs> hey, you want a great place to buy tickets to concerts or games of your choice? How about SeatGeek? SeatGeek, a longtime sponsor of the Joan and Kerry podcast, and it's many iterations, and they are fantastic, data driven. And really, really cool the way that they go about it. Color-coded map can tell you exactly where you would want to sit. Best seats for the best value at whatever. A baseball game, a hockey game, a basketball game, a concert, an elephant show. Whatever it is that you could possibly want. SeatGeek has got you covered. I've used them for all kinds of different events. Many baseball games and hockey games and concerts. and They are really, really fantastic. And even better... You can get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase if you have not yet signed up, if you've not yet used SeatGeek. So, so easy. You download the free SeatGeek app. You enter the promo code Jonah today, and you get 20 bucks off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's it. That's all you got to do. It could not be easier. SeatGeek, fantastic. Love them. Love them for sponsoring the show. 20 bucks off your first purchase by entering the promo code Jonah. And there you go. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Um, I want to ask you also about names. Uh because I feel the same way. You brought up Fennis Dembo, which, like, that's already my favorite thing, and Burkowski and all that stuff, and there's a chapter about what if you switch people's names and all that stuff. It applies for basketball. Do you think it applies for life the same way? Like, if you're a lawyer like Bob Justice, then, like, you're, des- you're destined to be the best you're lawyer. You're Bob Justice. You're running the <laughs> law game. Absolutely. Yeah, I think names have a big part of it. What if you were Jacob Carey? 
You're not like a nationally known baseball writer if you're Jacob here. Actually, maybe. I, I want to change I, my name. I think Carrie is like the strong part of your name. Interesting. I, I, it's I, a I, fake name. It's one of those like came to the to the border and you captured it. We actually had a choice of uh, they, uh, in Canada. The family was given Carrie, or we could have been Kennedys. That was the other choice. Kennedy? I could have been a Kennedy. That would have been dope. I know. It would have been good. Jonah Kennedy. Bo- both of those names are winners, though. Carrie <laughs> and Kennedy. You're good. Yeah, if you if you've got a sucky name, yeah, you're in for a rough a rough ride. There was a, a girl at my younger my second youngest sister's school. Yeah, her last name was Buttmaster. Come on, Buttmaster. I, what? I'll never forget it. With and two T's. With two T's. B u t t m a s t e r. It was like Natalie Buttmaster. Or like <laughs> but that. what could the first name be that could make it better? There's no way to make that better. <laughs> and plus, she was like one of the two white kids in the school or in the grade level. She, oh, just, was, she just got it bad. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. doesn't matter if she's like a model. Like, it makes no difference. No, you got to change the last name. You got to go Buckmaster. Buckmaster's amazing. Buckmaster's strong. So if you were not happy with your name at whatever age, you would have just changed it? No, I didn't know you could... Well, I guess not. Well, maybe <laughs> not. well, I literally when I when I started high school, there's a lot of same kids I went to elementary school with, but I, I didn't like Jonah at all because it was nobody was named. Now there's a bunch of six year olds named that, but then there was nobody. So mm-hmm. My middle name is Matthew, and I'm like Matt. That's like that's fine. That's, that's cool. fine. Uh, and I tried that for like a week, and my elementary school friends are like, "What are you doing? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The teacher's I'm, not gonna call you that." I'm Matt it. now. <laughs> <laughs> no twelve year old Jonah, you're still gonna lose it. That's not happening. Um, Let's get into some of the players in the book, and especially Reggie. First of all, how did you go about just asking Reggie to write the intro? Because that was so, that had to be amazing for it you. It was very amazing. Yeah. That, I, I asked Kristen Ledlow, yeah. who she's a host of Inside the NBA. Yeah. I mean, Inside Stuff on... Formerly a mod shot. On NBA TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I watched as a kid so with, with a mod. Like, I was a little older than you, but yeah. my main man, yeah. a mod. Um, but I, I don't know how we became friends on Twitter, but we became friends on Twitter and we're following each other. So I knew she was connected to everybody. So let me ask Kristen if she can make this happen. I sent her one email. Yeah. Hey, this is what I was hoping for. And she just replied back like, I got it or something like that. Something real short. I got you. And then that was it. And then like two days later, I was on the phone with Reggie, his, 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 uh, Handler or manager got in contact with me, and she set up a phone call, and we did it. And they were—he was super into it. And I think I think maybe part of it was because he knew already how much I liked him. Because when I was at Grantland, I wrote this thing. I was yeah. like on the 20th anniversary of his eight points and nine seconds yeah. shot. So, and he saw that article because he tweeted it out or something crazy like that. Um, but yeah, that's how it, that's how it happened. It was all Kristen. She just you know pulls some strings or does what she does, and there you go. It's a that stuff has been happening to you a lot lately and, and and it's just I can't even imagine the feeling when you're just affirmed by like oh like here's this guy that I've wrote this yeah. gal that I've written for my whole life it's like oh yeah totally Reggie Miller wrote the intro to my book mm-hmm. like totally Superman came and did like it's just it seems inconceivable and I feel like there are a lot of awesome parts of this job honestly connecting with readers is probably the best one but there's a little something to like oh yeah totally like who was um, was it Grandmaster Flash on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no. You have about that... With the tweet. Sugar, yeah, it was from the Sugar Hill Gang. Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, shit. Like, that's... I, I don't even... How do you process that? Yeah, that was cool to see the book there. Um, I think my favorite one from the Rap Gear book was when it was on Puff Daddy's Instagram. Oh, my God. And it was like a shot of his... Like, a I don't know, an entertainment center or something. And the, the book was sitting right. There was like one of two things on the shelf. 
and it was a close-up of it. <laughs> Maybe he read this chapter. I read or reread it real quick to see if I wrote anything bad about him. Uh, but yeah, those sorts of things when they happen, it's, it's very cool. It's also very weird because it's happened a bunch by this point. Yeah. Even just last night, I was, you know, doing some work, and then my phone started going crazy. And it turned out that they were talking about the book during the Spurs Rockets game. Yeah, I saw that. And, and it was like, what the fuck? Why? Like, Kevin I, Harlan says you have two kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he called. I, he either said one of them was ugly or he forgot about one of them. <laughs> either way, he's telling the truth because he's like Kevin Harlan. <laughs> one of my kids is just ugly now. And, but yeah, stuff like that happens. And after a while, you would think it would become normal or you wouldn't freak out about it. But I think, as you mentioned before, just because... I didn't get into writing it through any sort of traditional way. I felt back then, I still feel today like, like an imposter of sorts. Like, I don't belong here. So any of this stuff that happens, it's always surprising. Like, maybe everybody else can look at me and say like, oh, that's a writer or, or an author or whatever. But it's, it's still weird for me to say it myself, even after all this time. So yeah, when something like that happens, when Reggie's like, yeah, sure, I'll write the forward for it. It's just, you freak out, man. Uh, I can only, speak for myself and the people I've talked to, but even if you come to it from a more traditional background, and even if you have some of the advantages that whatever, like, I think a lot of us feel like imposters every day about something or other. I'm glad to hear that. No, but it's like a universal (laughs) thing, and and I think that you just realize that this is getting off topic a little bit, but you just realize that more and more in life, it's like it doesn't matter what status this person has or how good they are. Like, we're all kind of faking it. We're trying, but... I don't know. I don't know how to get there. I don't. I have no idea. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know anything. Like it's right. all, it all seems anyway. Um, I want to ask you about MJ too, and maybe it's MJ as a way into other stuff. So with MJ, I feel like the moment. Well, there were a lot of moments with him, but it was probably the Celtics game in '86. Like Bird declares that he's God. Uh, this guy's Michael Jordan. He went for 63 at the Garden, which is preposterous. That team could really play defense, and he just did anything they wanted to do. You bring that, and so it's MJ, that's fine, he's the greatest player of all time, but you bring that forward now, how do you know? Like, we have Giannis, and we have Towns, and we have Porzingis, these guys might be like mega stars, you know? Hmm. Do you feel like it's one flashpoint moment, like Kawhi dunked on someone, you're like, oh yeah, now Kawhi is obviously part of the, the uh, whatever, the Illuminati, or is it like a gradual process where you're like, alright, I could see him getting better, I could sort of see it coming. It's a gradual thing. Yeah. It's the accumulation of of moments. Yeah. If you get enough of these very special moments, then you can be included in that class. Because everybody can have one or two. You can get a Ricky Deion, a Deion Waiters, <laughs> Deion Waiters three against the Warriors to win the game. Yeah. And you pose and it's great. You need like 20 of those yeah. to be in that top, top level class. Where we can... Where we can have a, a 30 for 30 about one of them and be able to talk about five other ones that maybe we should have had it on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's an accumulation thing. Uh, I want to ask you about Duncan because, you know, MJ Iverson, there are these guys that are these iconic players and they're just like so mesmerizing. Like, I loved Iverson. And uh, I think the only time I ever felt cool in my entire life was I used to play pickup basketball at USC when I lived in L.A. So I was like 24, so I was, you know, whatever. Kids are a little younger than me. And I was the white, I was the only white guy pretty much every time, and I was by far the worst player. But I, I, that's what you said about getting into the A game and being the worst player. It's yeah. great, because if you do well, you're like, oh, I showed up. It's great. Yeah. Um, and I, I was never a sneaker guy. Like, I never went for the newest or whatever, but the new Iversons came out. The questions? Yes. Yeah. And I go on the court. At the number one basketball shoe of all time for me. I agree. They're awesome. But the but the the red ones. I like the red. You know, you got the red and the blue. Yeah. Uh, give me the red ones. I, I think I went all white. 
And yeah, I like that's fair. They looked really good. And I, and I like I didn't have any pattern, but I just liked them. And I walked onto the court, and the guy who like I got to know him a little bit. And he was probably one of the best players. He's like six six. He could shoot. He could do whatever he wanted. He looks at me, goes, "Damn, the new iPhones!" And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah." That's that's the power Iverson had. It, it was it's pretty amazing that way. Um, but Duncan doesn't have that, and he never had that. And obviously, your affinity for Duncan goes hand in hand with your affinity for the Spurs. But if you're sort of looking outside yourself and saying, wow, I loved MJ, I love these guys who are just these iconic guys with these big moments or whatever, how does one learn to love, uh, you know, the big fundamental? A guy, a guy like that who just, like, does it every day, especially you, you're, you love dunks, you love this, you love flash. Here comes this guy who, very skilled, but he did it with consistency. Right. When something like that happens, I think you fall. You can fall in love with a player from far away when they have those big moments, like Iverson stepping over Lou or crossing over Jordan, yeah. or any of the times Reggie went nuts in the Garden. With Timmy being in San Antonio, the the reason he became so beloved was for me. San Antonio has always had this inferiority complex. It still has it today. It's never been a cool place. It's never been like. We have great schools, or we don't have anything, really. Like, nobody in New York or L.A. is like, I can't wait to make it to San Antonio one day. Nobody says that shit. So you're always feeling that. We're not even the coolest in Texas. Like, we're miles and miles behind Houston and Austin. Yeah. Probably behind Dallas, really. Yeah. So you, that's always there, and it's always in your head, and we're, you know, whatever, you're, you're that team, or that just that place. And then all of a sudden, you've got this guy who is the best player in the world at points. Like, the number one player on the planet belongs to you, and you have a guy that everybody's afraid of, and a guy that that is going to deliver championships to you, and you're going to get to feel like a champion for the first time ever. You're the number one. Like, there's, a, you're, there's your name and number one, and, like, that's a very powerful feeling. So you've got that, first of all, but then also... He was very much like he fit perfectly in Hispanic culture. You just do your work and you don't say anything. And he fit all of the stuff your parents were telling you to do yeah. and, to, and to be like. He was that all of the time. And it was like it just all matched up exactly right. And that's why everybody fell in love with him. And, he, you know, when you can put that feeling you're a champion or you're, you're number one in somebody's chest, like you become God basically. Right? People ask me all the time, well, what's it like being a Spurs fan living in Houston? I mean, it's fucking excellent because we've won <laughs> so many times. Like, it feels great now. It's not, it's not like before. So that's how he became like this, you know, unbeatable figure in, in San Antonio. Even with like somebody with, like Manu, who is coming from the other way, but he, he looks like us and he's very fiery and he's very cool. Um, but he was never able to get to that level that, that Duncan did as far as just belovedness because Duncan was that dude. Yeah. Uh, and I'm equally interested in the way that you grow to hate a player because I find that great. I guess it could just be like an arch rival of the Spurs or whatever, but like you, you lay it on Carl Malone pretty hard. Yeah, because he was a, he, they used to torment the Spurs. That's it? That's that, it? That's, that's, all, it? that's all it was. You, they, the, the Jazz were always beating up on the Spurs and then you had a couple of plays where he took like some cheap shots that he knocked David Robinson out one game yeah. with the with a dirty elbow, just straight up like that was your guy, and you saw him get knocked out. And how do you not hate that? 
And then what's great is you start to hate this guy, and then you get to watch him fall on his face over and over again against the Bulls, or even when he joined the Lakers, and that fell apart. It was it was great. But yeah, to to sort of sports hate somebody that for me, a lot of times it's regional. Yeah, you it, it, it's happening again with with Harden. Um, but there are like some things that you need to have in place. Number one, they need to they need to be a very good player. It's yeah. not fun to hate somebody who's not good. Part of the reason that rooting against James Harden is fun for me is because he can absolutely just slit your throat. He, that's why the series against the Spurs and Rockets last year was so much fun, or last postseason, because they should have the Rockets should have beat the Spurs and Harden just disappeared totally. You know, so great. Um, <laughs> but that's not fun if there's not that threat there. You yeah, know, there's got to be the prospect if you lose. So you have to have that. You also have it, it helps if they're on a rival team. San Antonio has a rivalry with Houston and with Dallas, so it was like, we don't like Dirk, we don't like Harden, we're, we're going to battle against these guys. And then also there, there are other guys like uh, Rick Fox, or um, who you just don't like the way that they look and the way that they talk and the way that they behave, and it's like that's part of it too. He's too good looking. He's, he's very good looking, he's very successful, yeah. great jawline, great teeth, <laughs> he's, he's very talented. <laughs> And he's a good actor. Yeah. He's like good at everything, it turns awesome. out. Yeah. So how can you, how can I root for him because I'm the opposite of all of those things? Um, do you guys? You have good teeth. They're okay. They're not great. They're solid teeth. <laughs> They're like a seven, maybe six. He's a ten. Um, but then you've got that. And then also if you've just got a team who's just beating the Spurs all the time, like with the Lakers in the yeah. early 2000s, and it was like I've watched them in the Spurs season so many times. And you just start to root against them. And then in those instances, there's always a, a level of respect with those guys. Of course, you respect Harden and uh, and, and Kobe. Yeah. And that has to be there for you to hate them as well. Just, I know they're, <laughs> they're coming. I wrote about it in the book. One of, the, like, one of my favorite basketball memories was being terrified that Kobe was coming to San Antonio. He, they played against the Rockets one game, and Shane Battier beat him up really well. And everybody was talking about how Shane Battier guarded Kobe Bryant. And for like two two days straight, and in my head I was like, "Why y'all are killing me?" Because I, I knew he was coming for fifty five points. Next yeah, year, for I, sure. He's just he's, he's I know he hears all this, and he's gonna come out and just put us in the dirt. Uh, yeah, you need those those parts to, to sports hate somebody. Uh, two segues. I was gonna go to Kobe. One other one. I wrote about a baseball player one time, and I, it wasn't like ad hominem attacks or whatever. But you know, I did whatever I did, and I met the person mm-hmm. afterwards. And they just busted my balls and gave me some grief, and it was fine. Like, it ended up being pleasant. Uh, how do you think it would go if you met Malone, or maybe even more, how do you think it would go if you met J. Cole? I'm sure they'd have no clue who I am or... Oh, come on, other, man. Any other stuff. Sugar Hill Gang, Reggie Miller, all these people know you. I don't know about that. If I would I would be very intimidated to meet Carl Malone. He's a big dude. He's a big, <laughs> scary guy. He knocked out David Robinson. That's, you could take J. Cole. I, I don't think so. J. Cole's tall. He's got reach. If we got in a fist fight, I think he's putting me down. I but you got leverage. Tall's the, overrated. The only the only thing that I have in my favor is that I don't mind cheating. So like, <laughs> I'll hit you in the head with a bottle if it comes to that. But if That's, you know, if I met those guys, I'm sure we would have a conversation about whatever. And I, but why would they? You never say anything cruel or anything. No, no, no. Like I just like I don't with the J Cole thing. I don't like his music, and that's what it is. Yeah. And like that. Why, why do I have to like somebody's music just because you're making music? Basically, um, I'm, there are a bunch of people who don't like my writing, and that's just what it is. Yeah, I don't think it'd be anything weird. I think it'd be more funny 
yeah. to, to meet these guys and to, like take a picture or whatever. Um, so with Kobe, I mean, Kobe's always the ultimate competitor. And he's got the underbite and this, that, and Kobe, fierce Kobe and alpha dog Kobe or whatever. And you just declare that Kobe's a dork. And that's the best disarming. I like, there's literally no greater burn than that. <laughs> Aside from the fact that, again, Kobe's a rival. And so you're going to take yeah. whatever shots, I guess. What what is it that makes him that as opposed to like like I feel like there's a lot of ways you can criticize Kobe. Some of them are actually pretty harsh, and but this was just like oh like that was the perfect burn. Like how'd you come to that one? Calling him a dork? Yeah, because he's a dork. The but why? How? You call him a dork? Well, you just look at some of the stuff that he's done. Kobe to me has I think he has that in common with Chris Webber where they sort of wanted this street cred mm. that they that they weren't quite they're able rich to, kids though both yeah, of them that they weren't able to really get yeah and Chris Webber less so I really he was to me he was a cool person yeah I thought you know he was like a very handsome guy and he was all of his stuff for the most part felt natural but with Kobe he just tried too many different ways to be cool and like he had the rap thing and it was really bad <laughs> and he. You mentioned the underbite thing that he started doing, yeah. that, like his angry face, that just out of nowhere I'm going to start doing this because <laughs> he saw somebody else do it. He started giving himself nicknames and it was just, like you were, it was just a bunch of dork moves in a row that made him dorky, but also terrifying. Like there's just no getting around that he was a terrifying basketball player, but I feel like there's also not getting around that. He called himself Vino because he was getting better with age. <laughs> and then it turned out. Like, I had forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he had like, I remember he had a guy who was talking about how he, Kobe was like going to be the next Nas of rap or some <laughs> bullshit like that. Like, come on, man. Nobody was saying that. Hey, you know what? Season long fantasy football, pain in the ass. I just lost on a ridiculous nonsense this titans colts game as i'm recording this and i'm annoyed about it but you know what FanDuel laughs all that because it's much much better new contest starting every week you don't have to worry about your garbage team and your terrible quarterback and all these things that i don't want to talk about uh and FanDuel, they're great it's fantasy football for everyday fans you got new contests like i said starting every week no busted seasons so you can get contests starting at a buck that's all you got to do to get in on the action a lot of fun. You pick a contest, you choose your team, and you watch your score real time, really, really easy. More than two and a half million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. So you can sign up today very easily. Go to FanDuel.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Click the Join Now button and use the promo code Jonah. News users get free entry to the NFL Sunday Million, which is more than $1 million in cash prizes. When you make your first deposit on FanDuel, Again, visit FanDuel.com and sign up with the promo code Jonah. Yeah, it's, Illmatic is the best album of all time, and whatever Kobe does is obviously number two. But there's no question. It's a close, it's a close, close second. So I, uh, like you, cannot get enough white man can't jump. I would probably guess I've seen it 80 or 90 times. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's weird because, like, if somebody asks you what's your favorite movie of all time, you're supposed to be like, oh, The Godfather or whatever. I'm like... Nah. I don't know if it's White Man Catch Up, but it's really high up there. It's what? a perfect movie. It's a perfect sports movie. It's a perfect movie about race. It's, it's, yeah, it's up there. For me, it's probably second or third favorite movie of all time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, well, I'm gonna have a question in a second, but one thing that resonates to me the most, and like, obviously the scenes with the two of them are some of the best, but when Rosie Perez asks for the water, or says, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like, but of course, and like I learned so much about myself, but I still can't help it to this day that I'm just like, I have to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. And is it because I have male genitalia that I'm just like, 
I have to fix this. Like, why? Who decided that? Like, I literally can't be just empathetic. Oh, tell me more about your water. I, oh, let me fix Like, I, I don't know. There's something about that that's totally right. And I still don't know to this day, why is it? Is it just dudes? Is it certain kinds of dudes? Why do we think that we have to try to actually come up with a solution to a problem? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Anyway, so the question that I have is, um, there's a, two, di- two different dynamic duo. Uh, chapters. Well, there's a fictional character chapter, and then there's a dynamic duo MBA chapter. Uh-huh. So I want to merge them. Uh, Dean and Hoyle, uh-huh. and let's assume that they have the abilities given to them in, in the movie. It's and not exactly clear how tall they are. Let's assume that they're MBA level tall. Let's assume that one is 6'8", and one is 6'6", six, six or whatever. Look, they're pretty big guys. And the okay. movie, they're small. They're like 6'1". Right. Six, six, right. <laughs> let's say that they're a little bit bigger and they can do everything else. And they're going up, and, and they're like the street the legends, and they beat the king of the duck, and they're that good. Okay. And they go up against your one of the best duos. I'm not going to say whether it is the best or not. They're going up against Kemp and Peyton. Mm-hmm. Are they getting any points? I think they get a few points. Yeah? I think I think a couple. Uh, if they get the ball first. Yeah. Billy's getting some buckets. You think so? Against Peyton, yeah. Because Sid- oh well, I guess if he's six six. Yeah. So, okay, so let's assume that they're roughly. Let's let's assume that Sydney's about six nine. He's not far from Kemp, and let's assume that Peyton and and, uh, and Oil are about the same. They're the same height. Yeah. yeah. Billy was too. Clever of a player to, yeah. to not be able to score. You remember the, the one shot? He, it's like a two-handed backwards falling away from yeah. the rim off the backboard shot. Like he's going to do a couple of those on you. He, I don't. He never missed a shot in the movie. Is that not, true? Not once. I don't think. He's if, if he shoots it, it's going in. Yeah, Sydney definitely missed. Well, obviously in the, in the showdown, but even in the games too. Yeah, he he missed on purpose also. Yeah, well, uh, but yeah, they they get a few. If they played a fifteen. They get four points until the until the Sonics get the ball and then it's a wrap. Um, yeah, I love. It's an interesting concept to me the two handed shot because like I feel like players like that can succeed for short periods in pickup. Like when I play, I play like I, I shoot a hook shot. Mm-hmm. Nobody's done that since like Kareem or George Mikan or whatever. And yeah. like I do it on some guy. And they go, "What are you doing?" And then there's something. Did you have something like that, like an old man move or something where it's like aside from threes and aside from just the conventional stuff? Where you, you had one go-to, and people were just like, I don't know what the fuck to do with it, and you would get a couple every game off of that. I, I did when I got older. When yeah. I was, let's say, up through like 30 yeah. or so, I was very, because I'm small, yeah. very fast. Yeah. So I could get to the rim on some like Tony Parker. Yeah. Um, and so I had that. And then when I got older, and I started slowing down, yeah, I had to, I came up with this, it's not quite a hook shot, but it's something similar to a hook shot. And I would go in the post, which was always the post. which was always ridiculous, <laughs> right? So down down by the down by the that box that's by the free throw line, mm-hmm. I would go right there and I would call for the ball. Don't throw it up though. Give it to me. Literally back at the guy calling for it calling in a game of five by five. You yeah. might be the shortest guy on the court. I'm the short. I'm always the shortest guy on the court, or I'm close to. And but that means that the shortest guy on the other team is guarding me. So yeah. it's like five seven versus five ten in the paint, and. I call for the ball down low. Don't throw it. I'll tell him, don't throw it high. Like, Sounds basically bad. roll it to me <laughs> so that he can't get it. And then I would, like, just straight up two dribbles, shake to the left, come to the to the right to put my shoulder into his chest. Yeah. And then it was like a like a, a push shot, yeah. basically, that went 15 feet up in the air. And, and I practiced it. Because I was teaching still, I practiced it in the gym several hours over the course of like a, a couple of weeks, just every single day, every single day, every yeah. single day. And so I got pretty good at it. And I started doing that and then it was like, 
this was a thing I could do. And we were playing, this was, by this point, we were playing against high school kids, so they're all made of rubber and jumping through the, yeah. the ceiling. And for some reason, they, they would panic when I would go down there because they knew it was coming. <laughs> and then they would all run at me and I would just throw it back out. But that was my one secret move that I, that I had. I like that. Well, yeah. And you talk a lot about little guys who do stuff around the rim too, like, Sherman Douglas stood out to me like he could he had yeah, flutters yeah. all kinds of stuff. But Parker, man, like I didn't know the numbers. By the way, the book, even though it's wildly entertaining, like it's just the right amount of numbers. Mm-hmm. It, it is, and I'm like, numbers are a lot of what I do, but it just it hits it. And with Parker, like you're telling stories, but you're also like, yeah, the guy shot. I don't even remember what the number was, but some insane number in the lane. He's six one. Mm-hmm. Led the league and. Led the league. I mean, are we missing out on how good Parker was slash is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? We're talking about one of the greatest point guards of all time, which gets washed away because of the greatness of Tim. Yeah. Or or how good Manu was. Or even Kawhi now. Like, it's just, that's Parker. He's fine. Yeah. You just assume he'll get the job done. You don't pay too much attention to him. But, yeah, he was a devastating scorer at the rim, and... Once he figured out how to shoot a jump shot in the Spurs, that's when they really were like very, very good. Yeah. And he never really learned how to shoot threes. That was the thing. He would never, it wasn't that he would outfake you on the three and then get to the lane. He could outfake you from 17 and get to the lane. But like he, at the beginning, he just had that yeah. and it worked anyway. Yeah. That's why if we're, I mentioned it in the book when we we're talking about getting to the rim because Steph is, is fantastic at getting to the rim yeah. too. But he has that threat of the three where you have to run him off the line. Literally the best shooter of all time. And, yeah. and, and Parker never had that. And he was still able to get there more often than than Curry is. Uh, yeah, Tony Parker Tony Parker is great. I don't think you can put him like top 10 point guard of all time. I think but, so? Uh, but I think maybe, I think you can get him around 13. 13? Somewhere around there. I have to think about that a little bit. Uh, I love also the chapter about memory heroes, which is really cool. Uh, how did you come to that idea, and who was uh, your memory hero? Uh, I came to the idea because I wanted to write about players who otherwise wouldn't get to appear in a basketball player, Yeah. Right? So how do you do that? And I, well, I think I wanted to write about Vinny Del Negro, who was my guy when I was younger. Yeah. He played for the Spurs on a while for a little tiny bit. And I thought he was just great because he, I thought he was Mexican. We all thought he was Mexican. <laughs> we just convinced ourselves that he was sad. So he was, in our heads, the best player in the league for sure. And so I wanted to write about him. And then I was just, you know, thinking on the topic. And I figured surely everybody else has a player like this who grew up watching basketball. So let me ask a few other people who, who theirs were and if they want to do a thing for the book. And that's how we got there. Danny Ainge, only because he started. That was my guy. That's a great one. I lo- I, I was not never that great, but I would not shut up. And I was so skinny and, and whatever. And I, I had long hair, so I wore like a bad dad. Danny, you know, yeah. The worst. Like, dude, <laughs> the, literally the most hateable player of all time. But, like, mostly around 16. But yeah, Danny Ainge, because I'm like, nobody liked Danny Ainge. Perfect. Nobody. And he... he I, I will always remember the play when he threw that basketball in Mario Ellie's face. He bit Trey Rollins! He, just, he bit his <laughs> finger, like, almost off. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was a, a, a punk! A wild man. Yeah. Yeah, he would be, he would, he should have got beaten up several times. He should have. So should I. <laughs> there was one game in high school when I went for like 25 and I was pointing in the stands like I was going off and they, and, but it never, I, I did that a lot. And yeah. then the guy came down and confronted me after the game. I was uh-huh. like, well, maybe I should stop pointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, I want to ask you also about the code, the New York Times bestseller code. So, there's two. This is going to be two questions. Okay. One I want to ask you about is what it felt like when you found out you had a New York Times bestseller, and the other is, uh, 
you know how to become a New York Times bestseller. Like it's aside from oh, write a good book. There's actually a mathematical formula to it. So let's start with the visceral part. It's just like oh shit, this happened. Like what did that feel like? That felt like I was in LA when it happened because I was out pushing the book and I had a book signing out there. And I was actually I was at the Grantland office and we were waiting to find out. Because what ended up happening was the book took off and nobody was expecting it to. We were talking about the rap year book. It yeah. It sounded like crazy. And the publishers were not prepared for it. So we, we sold, I think maybe like 8,500 copies that first week, something like that, which they were expecting a thousand copies. We did 8,500 and they just didn't have enough to ship to everybody. So you only get credit for books. If somebody buys them in a store or if you sell them online, you only get credit once they ship. Mm. So we had sold several thousand through Amazon, like seven of the 8,500 or something through Amazon, but they only had shipped maybe four or 5,000 copies. So they, we didn't get credit for all of them. So it became a thing like we're probably not going to make the list, but it was going to be because of this stupid reason. Yeah. So I was already mad and <laughs> the, the publishers were like trying to apologize and but it wasn't, you can't it, fix that last minute. It's no, you can't hard, fix yeah. it. But again, it wasn't their fault. Yeah. It just all happened out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But they were still like, you know, sorry about this, whatever. And then I got the phone call from my editor, Samantha. And I was in the office at, at Grantland. And I knew it was either going to be very good news or very bad news. Yeah. And when I asked it, she was like, can I speak with the New York Times bestselling author, Chase Brown? Oh! And like a very smooth move like that, right? And so I, I, I like made this very loud grunting noise. <laughs> and I did like... When Michael Jordan hit the shot over Craig Elo and he started to do the pump, like I did the fist pump like that, and I was like, yes, 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 because I knew already, I've been thinking about it all the time, like I knew once that happened, for the rest of my life, they're going to have to say that before. Yes! It's like a big thing. It's the best. Right? And I was I was very, very excited and overwhelmed, and like I called my wife, and I called uh, Arturo and told him, Yeah. and, and it was a, a cool feeling, I told everybody in the office, and we were just sort of celebrating, and there you go. Uh, as far as the, the the code to get on the list, like pre-orders, that's, that's still there's no way to know because even with the Rav Yearbook, for example, yeah, we got credit for I think like 5,500 books, okay, and there were books ahead of us that sold less, that sold like 3,000 copies, that were two or three spots higher than us. So they the way it was explained to me is you have to sell, uh, you know, at least 7,000 books the, that first week, mm-hmm. but it also has to be. You can't just sell them all from Amazon. It's got to be spread out, and there's got to be like some press around the book. There's, there's what I don't know exactly what the New York Times formula is, but really all you can do is try to sell a bunch of books and and make as much noise as you can and cross your fingers and hope. And that's that's all there is to it. I wish it was just a straight up numbers thing, but yeah. it's, but it's not. It's more complicated than that. Well, and on obviously your social media is awesome, but um, you do self promotion, and it's. Charming, which is fucking hard to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and is it just like I'm going to be myself and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to do fist pumps and we'll see if people like it or not? Or was there any strategy behind it? Because like there are a million things you do with social media in addition to that, but like fundamentally we're all on our own island. You're employed by the ringer. I'm employed. We're all employed, but like it's kind of us. We're out there and we're doing mm-hmm. whatever. So did you just at some point make a concerted decision just like, 
all right, like I'm going to go with this and I'm going to try to have fun with it, or because or, right? it's just hard to do that without being distasteful. Or seem, maybe it's just in our heads it feels that way, but it feels that way to me. No, it's definitely hard to do that. Yeah. Sometimes I see other people doing it, I'm like, Ew, this is stupid, why are you doing this? Yeah. Uh, and I, I do feel like that at times about myself. But I, I just try to be like, at least as honest as possible, or it's very helpful if, to to tell people what numbers are. They really like that. And most publishers won't let you do that. They didn't let me do that with the Rap Gear book. Yeah. But I was at, you know, I was asking for permission to do it this time because it just makes everything a little bit easier. Like yeah. if I tell you right now, you know, get down and do push-ups and then you ask me how many and I just say a lot. Yeah. That doesn't... What's what, a lot? What's a lot? Yeah. But if I tell you 20, then you can like push yourself to get to 20 even when you feel like stop it. So it was the same thing with with, uh, with the book stuff. Um, but yeah, I... As far as why it works, um, I think maybe because the, it's such a small portion of the time is devoted to that because I haven't done this push since like the last book came out two years ago, and in between then we've done a whole bunch of other. Yeah, and just all of that time is built up building equity basically with these people because we're on Twitter together and we're making jokes and like we're feeling friendly and I'm answering emails and we're talking and it's like we're buddies now. So of course, if I have a book coming out. And you're my buddy. You're gonna go go buy the book. Like if you had a book, I would go. Oh, Jonah's got a book. Let me go buy a few copies. You do that all the time. You did it with Abrams. You I'm, I'm, like a bill. I can't even name the number of people. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. yeah. That, like that's my guy. Let me support him. So if you're on Twitter enough and you've got enough people who feel like you're their guy, then yeah, we're you know we're gonna we're sort of in it together. Is the thing. Yeah, it, it really does feel like the you're their guy thing, and and the, the army that has been built is pretty amazing. Uh, I love some of the stories. I love the. The stuff about they feel inspired and so they do X or whatever. Is there one that stands out to you like, oh, yeah, you know, they shot their shot or they did whatever it is. Right. And, and you're just like, oh, shit. Like of all the things, wow, that guy, that gal, that one thing. No, You know, I, I try to sort of think through that every once in a while. But there are just so many of them that come in Yeah, that I think more than anything, I just like that we have that sort of reputation where we can all sort of celebrate together. Yeah. So if somebody gets engaged and they take a picture and they send it to me, that's cool that they're letting me be a part. So of cool. Or if they like get into graduate school and that if they send me a picture, then that means when they got into graduate school, at some point along the way, they were like, oh, I'm going to send this to Shay. And that's very meaningful to me that they would let me be a part of that. And I'm going to take credit for for them getting into school. Sure. Like, I'm going to take all the credit that they that they. They want to give me very playfully, but just that they would let me be a part of that thing, like we're going to celebrate some cool stuff together. It it means a it means a whole whole bunch to me. So yeah, when they if it's like I got a job or I got engaged or I got into graduate school or even if I just apply for a thing and fingers crossed, like you know, we're in it together. Cool. Amazing. I got a few more. Um, for a long time, you didn't get too political, and you even called out the. I'm trying to remember the exact moment, but you basically said, okay, like, enough is enough, and you went for it. Uh, what was the inflection point for you that you said, okay, whether it's on social or in writing or whatever, this is what I'm going to start to do a little bit more? It was when all of the Trump stuff was happening because he Before just... Before he got, he got into office? When he was campaigning? Or? When he was campaigning. Yeah. And it was like, all, the stuff he was saying and the stuff he was doing was just too much. Yeah. And it was like, it felt like, okay, this is a situation where you're being... You have to decide right now, What are you going to be a person who's going to say something, or are you going to be a person who doesn't say something? And in those sorts of situations, I want to at least always be the person who's going to say something. Hmm. Let me say something. Yeah. Because, whatever. 
I did. You just feel compelled to do that, and the, the, all of a sudden, this guy is just like attacking people and making fun of handicapped people and different minorities. And it was like, what is going on? Why are people supporting this guy that's doing these things? Why do you not see how bad this is? Yeah, yeah, I should be speaking up on that, especially being a Mexican dude with like a, a tiny bit of platform. How can I not? You know what I'm saying? How can I not speak up for anybody for these other people who don't have? This thing, or there's, I'm getting emails from other people, and they're like, "I don't know what to do. This is terrible. How do I? What do I say? How, you know? Like, yeah, you got to say something. Just say something. Yeah, and I mean, you built that equity with the army or whatever, but there's never, you're never going to have a hundred percent hit rate on politics, no, no matter. No. So I mean, how did you deal with that blowback? I mean, were you just like, well, we just disagree, or you just like, okay, like I'm sorry, we don't get along, and I guess you're not part of the army anymore. How, how does that go? Um. Mostly it's just like... Yeah. Like if you can see... Well, and you block people and you have the whole... It's funny when you do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's like... <laughs> I mean, I do that every once in a while, the, the blocking thing. Mostly I just do it in private. It's like, okay. That's yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, if you can see all of the stuff that, that he's doing and still find a way to be like, well, I'm still supporting this guy, then it's just like... Like, that's just what it is. There's no gray area you're either in or, or against. And so as far as blowback, that's... That's just what it is. Like, if you make a statement without Trump and anyone who stands with him, the people who stand with him are going to say something. Yeah. And you, have to, like, you just have to accept that, and it's, it's whatever. But I want to be very on the record that this is how I feel. So if you're around me, you can expect that. Well, and it's not a disagreement about marginal tax rates or what are we going to do about no, court no, no, reform no, no. or whatever. It's no. a different kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you've lived in Texas for a long time. There's... The politically, there's some interesting stuff going on regardless. They're all, they're but, all around my house. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of all around your house, so I, I came over here in a cab and, uh... That's a smooth segue right there. Thank no, you! Good. Speaking of... <laughs> I'm trying. Um, the cabbie pointed out, hey, you know, like, this neighborhood was in the floodplain, and, mm-hmm. and not, you don't see it as much now, I get, I'm guessing, but, like, our couch is on the curb, there's branches or whatever, and it's just a reminder, and I meant to ask you about Harvey, and I didn't know I was going to get into it, but I, I think the easiest question you told me off before we started talking was everyone got it except you came out like this close yeah, yeah, yeah. and you wrote about it and uh it was great it was one of my favorite shape pieces of all time very different kind of shape piece how do you go about writing something that's so literally close to you you just you just do it yeah i think the thing that i'm trying to do anytime i write something is i want to be as honest as possible yeah right because that's just what works yeah. for me. And it does make you vulnerable, and you do like sort of open yourself up a bit, which is always scary. But that's just the way you, you have to approach that, that situation. And yeah, like you can look out the window here and see there's still trash across the street. They just came last week. The, all of the, these, these piles were like several feet high with, with uh, like when you tear the house out and all the drywall and insulation. Yeah. It was like that all the way around through here. They just came and picked that up this past week. There's still some stuff out there. Um, so yeah, it's like a very sensitive issue to have to deal with, but like you mentioned, in our neighborhood, it all got flooded except there were four or five houses that didn't, and we were in that group, and it was like, that was a weird dynamic to to drive through that and get to our house, which is fine, but you've got these people who, their you lives like are just wrecked. Yeah, of course yeah. you feel guilty, yeah. and you don't know how to handle it. Uh, all you can do is try to help out yeah. in every way that you can, and, and be as sensitive as possible to the to the situation, and like... We might deliver some sandwiches or Gatorades to people who are doing the work or like 
there's a message board right now set up and somebody might say, hey, I need somebody to watch my kids for two hours yeah. while we do a thing. Like you just try to be involved and, and all of that stuff. But like, that's really all you, all you can do. Just be as sensitive as possible to the situation and help out where you can. And like, and that's it. And you don't get to feel any sort of way above what somebody else is feeling who had to actually go through it. Like you're yeah. always going to be in second place there. And it's because, I mean, you have been able to take your platform and, and t- dip into philanthropy more and more and, and like, you know, raising several thousand dollars in an hour. And the Harvey thing was a monster amount of money, an incredible amount of money. Um, you know that this is something that you can mobilize at any time. And so far, it seems, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like it's pretty piecemeal. It's like, this lady helped me up in the parking lot. This happened, this happened. Okay, let's let's do some good deeds. Do you have long-term thoughts to, oh, I could, like, run a foundation and raise, like, $5 million or whatever? Like, are there any grander ambitions, or do you think it might keep going on for a while on the piecemeal? Like, eh, this got to me. I'm going to keep doing this. I think it's going to stay that way. Yeah? Because it, that... I, I put, I did start to think about, especially after the Harvey stuff, and it was like a hundred something, $134,000 in a few hours. Yeah. Like, this is a real thing. This is a, first of all, this is a very scary thing. Yeah. Um, but it's a real thing. And should we be doing some sort of organization, some sort of nonprofit? Yeah. And, but ultimately it, that just felt counterintuitive to just the way everything is sort of run. Because again, it's all just a thing happened and we'll respond to that thing. I, it doesn't work, I think, as well, um, or as, a, or as meaningfully if it's just always in place and sort of always going. So, no, I think it'll stay the way that it is and we'll help out wherever we can or whatever way. It feels like the right time to. Are to people like pitching you now because they know that this is something that you can uh, do? It, it, all day. Yeah? All day, every day. It's so hard to say no or to not answer or whatever. Yeah, like, what it's do you really, do? it's really hard. Mostly I just will respond, like, more times than not, it's a GoFundMe thing. Yeah. Oh, I started a GoFundMe for Puerto Rico. Can you tweet it out? Can you tweet it out? Yeah. And it's like, no, I, I'm not going to do that because why would I tweet your GoFundMe when I can send people to the actual a thing that I know is going to help Puerto Rico legit? Yeah. I mean, if I give you the money, then you're just going to send it to the same place. Right. And we're going to lose a percentage of it because GoFundMe takes it a long way. Yeah. Um, but so I try to stay away from that sort of thing. And then also... I tried, I, I did a, a GoFundMe a while back and I got burned on it. Oh. It was like this person said they set it up because a, a, a child of a person I knew passed away. So, uh, like a friend of the family or something set up a GoFundMe to, to do the funeral. And I was helping out there and then that person just kept the money. And it was like, you know, several thousand dollars. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so I try to stay away from, from that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, all day long, I get, people are sending it in and I, I just, again, I just try to be sensitive of the situation or as respectful as possible. And more times than not, people are cool about it. Like they send me a GoFundMe thing and I say, oh, I'm not going to do that because I got burned on this other one. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I appreciate, appreciate it. Okay. And then that's all it is. Like everybody is, for the most part, everybody is very, very cool about everything. Yeah, again, if you're taking the time to respond, then that's really all anybody is looking for. If you just straight up are ignoring people, yeah, then then that's then that's hard. Which I try not to do, but I'm sure I have at some point. Uh, three more. Um, I'm also dad of twins. Yeah, it's a club. It's a thing. What's it like? I have my opinions. What's it like the first year when you're just it's you and you got the twins. You're trying to make it work, and then. 
now that they're older, does that feel super different than just like well, your friends who have a six-year-old and a four-year-old and all that? Right. The first year, it was, it was crazy, but crazy. you don't realize how crazy it is because you've never done it before. Yeah. Like, if you just start out with twins, then you're just like, this is what normal is. Yeah. And you figure it out. And when we ended up having another baby after that, then, then it was like, oh, shit, that was way harder one with, the, with the twins. You know, well, yeah. <laughs> it was much more difficult. But as far as, as now, once they got to, like, I don't know, two years old or something, and they became aware of each other. Because when they're babies, they don't know anything. They're not like, oh, another baby. That's not how babies work. <laughs> but once they got to, like, two or three and they started playing with each other, then it was cool because then they were just sort of on their own yeah. all the time. Even now, they can be together for, like, 20 hours straight and not bother me at all Yeah. besides they need some food or something. Yeah. Um, so it's easy now. It's not, it's not a thing. It does very much feel like they're just friends, super friends all the time together. And it sucks for the baby because he's sort of left out of that group. Um, he's super smart and fun and I got to he, meet him he, and like yeah. he's great. He's way smarter than they are. Is that right? And like at, like at their How? age... He's going to be five in a few Oh, yeah, he's smart. I wasn't sure how old he was. He's freaking smart. Yeah, he, he's much more intelligent than they, they were idiots. <laughs> I think because they were only around each other, so yeah. they were just like that level. But he's always trying to keep up with them. So, yeah, as far as raising twins, it sucks in the beginning, but it's it's easy after that. Um, second to last, what did you love about teaching, and would you consider going back in some form as a guest lecturer or something like that? Because you've talked about it, and you've said how much you loved it. Obviously, yeah. it's not as lucrative as writing at the high levels can be, but um, would you give that... Jay Adonde punted everything and went to Northwestern. Like, this stuff happens. Would you consider... Did going, you really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's gone. He's just, he, he was doing both. He was with ESPN, and I'm pretty sure now he's just back at Northwestern full-time, and he's just doing that. That's and Jay is one of the greatest NBA writers of our generation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would go back. I would like to eventually go back to, to teaching. Yeah. Once I don't have to pay all of the bills out. <laughs> yeah, right. Because that's hard. To, you know, teachers make... And Houston... 45, 50 grand a year. Yeah, and to be a tenured professor is like a whole other ball yeah. of wax that requires a and, career path, yeah. And I would never go back and do that. Like, if I went, when I go back to teaching, it will be at, like, the middle school level. Okay. The Title I school. Yeah. That that's the, the, the job that I want. As far as what I, what I loved about it, it, it was a job that just made me feel important. It was, it was immediately affecting people just by going to work every day. Yeah. Is what it felt like. And it was easy to see in that situation. Now we can like raise a bunch of money and give it away and like I get a nice email back or something like that or a couple of pictures and it's like cool. But, and I'm sure it helped a lot of people. Sure. But in the, you know, if I'm teaching, I can see myself helping this one kid. And it's that, like that sort of relationship was, was very meaningful to me. So yeah, I would, I would like to go back eventually. Not right now. Um, so last question which I do at the end of every podcast is I always ask the guests for a life tip like a nugget of wisdom whatever and I've never felt more confident in my life what the <laughs> life tip is going to be but if that's if that's actually the one then just spell it out and why it's important or it could be something else I don't know no I, I'm going to for my life tip I'm going to just say just keep going that's all you need I think that's really all you need to do beyond anything else is just keep on just keep walking forward if I think about my writing career, when I started out, there was like, you meet up with other people who are at that same level yeah. that, that you are. So there was a group of us, five or ten of us, guys and, guys and girls who we were all starting out at the same time. And several of those people I can 
comfortably say they were much more talented than I was as far as writing. Yeah. But they just stopped going and they didn't get to where they were trying to go just because they stopped going forward. So I think that's more important than really anything else, more important than talent, more important than connections, is if you just keep showing up, keep keep doing it, you're going to get to where you want to go. Well, and I feel like it can overcome tough stuff too. If you have a family tragedy or something like that, like what what else is there to do? Like if you exactly. stop to think about it too much, you're, you're screwed. And it's like, life sucks, but what are you going to do? Uh-huh. Well, Shay, uh, a super duper pleasure to meet you. I yeah. cannot freaking tell you how excited I am. How things are going for you? I like me too. I, <laughs> but I've never met you, and like I, you know, we worked the same place. But I was just like, holy shit, this guy's killing you! Like I, I would like get emotional, and I, I like I, at home I would talk about it. just like I'm very excited for you. So, uh, Mazel Tov on everything, man. <laughs> All right, thank you.